Mary and I have been looking forward to publishing this episode since the moment we stopped recording. Our interview with Christoph was fun and informative, personal and vulnerable, and all things third place, allowing me and Mary to ask honest and curious questions about his experiences as a little person. Since birth, Christoph has proved everyone wrong when they discounted his ability. Raised in Detroit, Michigan, he found ways to be very active, and after graduating from Michigan State University, he worked as a TV producer while touring in a rock band. He now lives in Los Angeles, where he's a drummer, actor and stuntman, surfer, journalist, and speaker. Christoph is also the producer and host of the podcast, I'm Kind of a Big Deal, Little People, Huge Stories. He interviews little people sharing their life experiences. Christoph, welcome to the Third Place Podcast. We welcome you to explore the third place with us. It is an invitation to the gray space, a space where deeper connections are fostered through challenging, challenging, empowering, empowering, and and engaging dialogue. You will walk away with a deeper understanding of self, equipped to engage with others in life's complex conversations. Thank you for listening. We invite you in to the third place. So I kind of wanted to start because we have a joke that every podcast starts with, I'm so excited to bring on this guest. And, you know, I'm not really excited to bring you on. No. <laughs> Just so you guys know, Christoph is shaking his head right now. Oh. And he appreciates the, the dry humor, even if though it might catch you guys off guard. Um, I'm not But I'm crying. actually going to say, <laughs> <laughs> so not only am I stoked, to bring you on, uh, you know, a, a synonym for excitement. Um, I also just want to give a little bit of a disclaimer that every time I've gotten to speak with Christoph, there tends to be a lot of laughter. So as listeners, just beware, I might laugh quite a bit. So there's my disclaimer. And Christoph, it's seriously so fun to have you here. And we haven't even started. Do I talk now? <laughs> Hello? <laughs> No, seriously, I'm, 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 I'm so stoked. I'm even wearing a shirt that says stoked on it. Um, oh, you are. Oh, my gosh. And that wasn't planned. Uh, I actually didn't even see that on your shirt before I said it. That's so funny. It's just like one of my favorite words. I mean, I'm a Colorado girl. so Yeah, I live in California, so I, I'm stoked all the time. Uh, yeah, this is <laughs> a blast. Thank you so much for having me. Um, Mary laughs a lot. I'll, you know, I'm sorry for all that, everybody. Um, but this, this is going to be so fun. And, uh, you know, I've, I've really enjoyed listening to the, the shows that you put out and I think you get into a really cool space because you talk about stuff that is a coming together. You know, you, you talk about this coming together, which I think is such an important thing. And that's also something that I'm striving for as well. Yeah. And, and so you have a podcast called I'm Kind of a Big Deal. And I love how you start your podcast. So I want to start there. I want to start with you. You ask all of your guests, can you share your height and what type of dwarfism you have? Absolutely. I have cartilage hair hypoplasia, which is a pretty rare form of dwarfism. And some of the symptoms or distinguishing characteristics of the dwarfism are in the name. So my cartilage is 
I was told was misprogrammed. My joints are kind of misprogrammed or that happens to a lot of people. And also I have very fine hair. So for the people who cannot see, I have no hair on the top of my head. I do have a full beard, but it is the softest beard you will ever feel in your life. And my arm hair is pretty much non-existent. So um, cartilage hair hypoplasia, and I am four foot four inches tall. You know, right away that, what I'm excited about with this podcast and this episode is I don't even know, honestly, what questions to ask. And it's like, <laughs> right. Yeah. And I'm like, wait a minute, there's different kind of dwarfism. Like, I think there's just so many things that we don't know about each other. And, and sometimes when it's when someone very clearly is different than the majority of people, there's this awkwardness. Like, how do we ask or do we act normal? What is normal? Yeah. It's like, I don't know. Our minds like bogged down, but right away, I I had no idea that there were different types of dwarfism. Yeah, I've heard a range between 100 and 400 different types of dwarfism. That being said, I, I repeat a lot of the same phrases on my show. Dwarfism is a mixed bag. The most common form of dwarfism is achondroplasia, and it's about 80% of dwarfs have achondroplasia. But within achondroplasia, you can be three feet tall or you can be four foot six or you can have have had multiple surgeries like in the double digits to deal with your condition or you can have zero (laughs) you know it all depends on it it, it, i don't know what it depends on it depends on just who you are and luck of the draw luck of the genes i Mm -hmm. honestly don't even know to to tell you the truth but a lot of uh, other individuals that I know that have cartilage hair hypoplasia are exceptionally short. So I'm four foot four, um, which is kind of on the taller side for my specific dwarfism relative to the people that I know and that I've interviewed. A couple of the people that I've interviewed on my show with cartilage hair hypoplasia are three feet tall, two foot ten, you know, a, a foot and a half shorter than I am. And, you know, I'm a foot and a half shorter than uh, maybe the average or a little bit above average male in society. Mm -hmm. Right. So, you know, let's like start with the beginning too, because I, one of the things that comes up for me is I remember when I was in, I think it was high school. I learned the difference between saying homeless people or people without homes or um, disabled people or people with disabilities. And so I quickly like retrained my brain because I was like, that's right. I don't want to define a status before I define a human. So I'm wondering, like, what's the politically correct way to to is it dwarfism? Is it little people? Is it people with a disability? Like what's like, and I'm sure that there, there's maybe a range and there's not one exact answer, but what would be your opinion on like, what's the best way to say it? So absolutely. I love this because this might sound like a gotcha, but it really isn't. The best way to say it is someone's name, which the reason why I, <laughs> the reason why I say that is because that takes the labels at all out of the equation. And that forces an individual to think of, oh, that person is disabled. That person is a dwarf. No, that means like the right way to say it is their name. So that means you have to go up and introduce yourself and have a conversation with that person and get to know them on some sort of level before you, you know, label them with some sort of term. 
terminology wise, if you're just going, you know, blanket ter- terminology, I probably throw around stuff that might not be the best way to say things. I've, I've gotten schooled by some people on podcasts. They've told me, oh yeah, actually this is the better way to say it. And I'm like, oh, awesome. Cool. Even a dwarf can learn these types of things, you know, someone right. with a lived experience, but individual with dwarfism, person with dwarfism, uh, little people, midget is the offensive term that kind of automatically is a red flag. Um, but you know what? I, I still see people that use the term midget in a sense of like, it's, it's a teachable moment. This isn't a bad person that uses the term midget. It's somebody who maybe doesn't know, maybe doesn't understand, has never met a short statured individual before. And so this is what we get from media and society always just perpetuating these terms that are misunderstood and they miscategorize us in a huge way. And so if that's all you know, and you allow for a teachable moment, then, you know, there's redemption there for sure. There's a portion to be learned. Yeah. An opportunity for redemption at the least. Right. Yeah, because absolutely. like, I'm like, even just yesterday, I literally sent a poll out to this big, uh, community I'm a part of working moms. And I asked them, I was like, what's the most gender inclusive way to say being a woman anymore? Because I have been really confused on that with there's all these different things. So I love how you brought up that, like, even being a dwarf, you can have teaching moments too. Cause I'm, I'm like pressing into that in my own femininity at this point. I'm like, I don't even know what's right. And the evolution of language right now, especially and being more inclusive and more compassionate is something that can be uncomfortable for most, but is definitely necessary. And hopefully we can have safe spaces like this. That's the whole intention is like, can people sort of dip their toe in and and walk away having even one thing that they didn't have to put their foot in their mouth to begin with? Yeah, absolutely. And Mary, you know, I think it touches on something that uh, we mention often here at the third place is offering that generous perspective. So if for someone who is, is different and, you know, let's be real, we're all different, right? There is no such thing as normal. That's the myth. Like if there is someone that's normal, all of a sudden that person's so weird because no one else is like that person. So let's start with that. But just this generous perspective of, you know, if someone says something that's offensive, you know, offering them the generous perspective of, they're not a bad person. There's an assumption that they haven't learned or, you know, what is that perspective? And again, of course, there's people in this world that are just assholes. But for the majority of people, we are, we are good, you know, and this generous perspective starts kind of with that framework. So it feels very safe just now when you were describing like how you're processing others interacting with you. So that's good. So from your childhood... Is dwarfism something that's seen right away? Like at what point in in your life did you uh, realize that you were different? Did you already know it? Did And then how did that interact as you started to, um, you know, grow up and and have more peers that were your age? Yeah, for sure. So day one, uh, the doctor came in and told my mom, hey, your son is most likely a dwarf. I think they use the term midget as a medical term in, you know, 41 years ago. And he's never going to live a, an active lifestyle. He's never going to ride a bike. He's never going to run. And, you know, this is the doctor handing 
me to my mom and saying this, you know, and as I understand it, that's a pretty devastating statement to make on your first day of life. So we knew it from the get that I had something. We didn't know exactly what it was. And it took my parents maybe about a year or so, year and a half to find a specialist with dwarfism. And we started to go see Dr. Kopitz in Baltimore, Maryland. When I was two, we would drive from Detroit to Baltimore, Maryland a couple times a year to have appointments and checkups and my range of motion would get measured twice a year. All of my limbs would get measured. I would have, you know, 12 x-rays on my legs and my back and I'd wait in doctor's waiting rooms for eight hours at a time. Um, but when you got into the doctor's office, it was as though you were the only patient for this doctor. It was the most gratifying experience and you felt like you were in the best hands ever. And I'm mentioning this because, you know, at two, three, four, five, my friends weren't going to the doctors and spending all this time driving and getting all of these x-rays and um, being in the hospital so much. And so, you know, that, that was not an alarm bell, but it was a realization for me that, oh yeah, this is something that I have to do. And it's, I, I liken those doctor's visits to business meetings for my health because there would be other doctors that would come in and they'd put the x-rays up on the light board and they'd be scratching their chins and like scrutinizing my bones and deciding what the procedure was and everything. And I'd be like, you know, in and out of the room because these appointments were an hour or two hours long. And for a four-year-old, that's a lifetime. And And you remember this. I mean, clearly like... I mean, it happened for 15 years. So yeah, Dr. Copas was... You know, he changed my life. I, I would not be able to do what I can do without pain like I can right now. You know, my life would be drastically different if it weren't for him. And he helped so many people with their issues around dwarfism. And, and he was kind of unorthodox in his surgery style, I guess. And, you know, taking those risks, we benefited so many people benefited from his his brain and his actions yeah the first thing that struck me was that your parents experience was that they they were told and they started from a place of like your child will never like instead of from a place of opportunity so like my my wish is that maybe that language could change yeah and that i mean like having a child to begin with is terrifying and especially in in the first 24 hours your body is not only in total shock but your your brain like all of it every your reality whatever it was before you walked in the doors has completely shifted within a matter of time and then to also add on all of that fear like that's a challenge i just have you know compassion for your mom in that moment too yeah and, and a, a hope that we can change some language there. But it also feels refreshing to know that the doctor or the specialist that she chose or that you ended up working with did make you feel, it sounds like, as seen as you possibly could. Yeah, the seen more than I could see myself, honestly. And even from that doctor's perspective, you know, he, he maybe started with the opportunities mindset. Yeah. And, and that led him in his practice. Do you have siblings? 
Nope, I'm the only one. I'm more than enough, my man. <laughs> That's for sure. <laughs> what? <laughs> I, like and so, so <laughs> sm- I'm I'm like small person, big personality. <laughs> It's only on the well, mic you... in a recording. I like you meet me in public, and I'm like, I can't. I don't want to talk. I gotta go. Really? <laughs> no, that's not the case. In person? No. It used oh, to, okay. Well, I was like, it depends. I don't know. There's a comfort zone there that you have to strike. I think, right? Sure. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And and so you know, you started to touch on the fact that you had surgeries. So I want to ask you first of all, you know, how many surgeries and what was that like? And like. Just the idea of the how invasive that is to begin with sounds intense to me. Yeah. And also, from what I know about dwarfism, like surgery really is accompanies a lot of stories with dwarfism, if not probably the majority. Is that right? I would say the majority. Yeah, for sure. So how many surgeries did you have? I had three big surgeries. One when I was six. So a big thing with dwarfism is... A lot of individuals will have bowed legs. There are two bones in the lower leg. One is the weight-bearing bone, the tibia, and then the fibula creates the joints with the knee and the ankle, and that is a non-weight-bearing bone. But when the fibula grows faster than the tibia, that's when the bones bend out and bow. And so what Dr. Kopitz did, the main thing that he did when I was six is he made non-unions out of my fibulas. So even to this day, my fibulas are not connected if you look at an x-ray, there's a gap in my bones there. And then he did some other, the osteotomy is a procedure where if there's a curved bone, they take a wedge out of uh, the outside, I guess, of the curve. And so that it kind of will straighten. Um, so I had an osteotomy and the non-unions. And there was some other stuff that happened that I don't really even, I was six, I don't know. But then after the operation, I'm in, a hip spike a cast which is almost a body cast so from my chest below my feet all in plaster with a bar between my legs which is super fun and you're prone on a wheelchair for three months over the summer that's not a buzzkill at all no no it's really cool um and your parents <laughs> will carry you around it's amazing like how you make shorts to go over a cast with a bar between your legs because that's interesting um yeah, you have to buy man's shorts and then put Velcro in the crotch. Whoa. Yeah. Functions don't stop even though you're in a cast, people. You got to function. Uh. <laughs> um, yeah, but you know what? My, my parents took me everywhere. I went to the zoo. I went to school. I went to the Detroit Tigers baseball games. I, I was getting around. It was like, it was awesome. I probably weighed 70 pounds with the cast on, but you know, I was, I was mobile. And then when I was, oh, so you wear the cast for three months and then physical therapy to get you back on your feet and get your, get your muscles going again. And then around 13 or so, the doctor noticed that I had a curvature in my spine. So he prescribed a back brace, which when you're a teenager and your name is Christoph, it's the worst experience ever. I hated wearing the back brace. My back was really fatigued and I needed to wear it. I thought it didn't work. It was just so stupid. I, I hated it so much. Um, so I wore the back brace on and off for a number of years. Then at 16, I had to have another full reconstructive surgery on my legs. They derotated my knees because I would have issues if I sat for too long and then would try to get up and walk. 
um, there was some instability in my ankles. So they put screws in my ankles. They actually took bone out of one of my tibias and put it into the other tibia to try and adjust a length discrepancy. And then there, there was another osteotomy. And then back in the cast, hip spica again from the waist to below your feet with a bar for another three months over the summer. And I didn't go anywhere. I was cranky about going anywhere. I just rolled around the house. But you know what's interesting is you eat so much food when you're after like post-surgery and in a cast. I ate four square meals a day plus snacks and cookies. I ate so much food that summer. It was amazing. Um, (laughs) But then, you know, I got out of the cast on my birthday, which was really cool. And I busted my ass in physical therapy and I was walking again in 13 days and on our way home. Wow. Yeah. And then on our way home back to Michigan. And then one year later ish, I had a spinal fusion because again, back brace was not a friend of mine and scoliosis was a thing. So um, I kind of knew, I don't know how I knew, but I kind of, always knew I was going to have to have back surgery. So I am fused from T1, which is the base of the neck to L4, which is right above the sacrum. Um, So my back does not bend and I have Harrington rods that are titanium rods that are, they can't perfectly straighten your back. They have to, when you're curved as much as I was, they have to kind of just mellow the curve enough so that you don't have complications. And then they put, bone, I believe from your hip in between each vertebrae. So it grows together and then they hook titanium rods to your vertebrae to keep it in place. And you you only need the rods for three months, but because opening your back is such a traumatic experience, they don't take the rods out unless there's a major issue. So also fun fact is you have to walk the day after your surgery when you get a spinal fusion. So yeah. Um, you got to get up out of bed. And even if you take two steps, you still got to take them. And uh, then you can pass out again and your treat is more morphine. Um, mm. I got, well, I got strawberry flavored morphine and it made it all better. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. I, I mean, like, wow, to medical advancements. Like I'm, I'm tripping out about that for sure. And yeah about um how how they've been able to like manufacture parts of of your body like that's just such a trip yeah yeah i mean and how many of those advancements were you know how much medical advancement has happened just in the last 40 years so you know not that that doctor was inaccurate at at, at your birth but i could see why he or she would say something like, this is going to be just a very limited life. Now you've overcome so much of that. Like your, your profile, I think you're a big skateboarder. So you've not only defied the odds, but you've, you've created an active version of life. Yeah. And I mean, I want to say this, this is not the case again. Like I, I can't say it enough times. Dwarfism is such a mixed bag. I am extremely lucky because Mm -hmm. other friends of mine who want to be active and can physically be active because they're tall enough or they have the limbs for it. They have significant pain and I have zero pain. 
which is insane. <laughs> it's mm-hmm. so lucky that, that, that is the, that that is the case. And, um, yeah, I, I, I skateboarded as a kid. I, I surf now, which is my favorite thing to do, uh, at all. I've toured in a rock band for six years, driving across this country, visiting every single dirty and dingy dive bar in every dirty and dingy town. Um, and lugging my drums seven nights a week in and out of the van on and off the stage playing hour long sets, you know, in front of three people or 15,000 people. And so I just never, I don't know, I guess ableism got the best of me and I just did all this stuff, you know, but I, I pushed the envelope and I, I pushed the envelope in the way that I knew or I thought it would work for me. You know, I'm not going to go out mm-hmm. and become a bodybuilder because I'm not going to put more pressure on my neck. I'm not going to jump out of a plane because I know that that's most likely a death sentence for me, you know, uh, whether the parachute opens or not. Um, and so it's, you got to be smart about what you do at, at the same time of also experimenting you know and i'm thankful that the things that i love i i'm able to do a lot of them so yeah i like that you brought up the that you mentioned luck though too because it's like even if everything went right you know you're saying that that doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to end up that you're going to have less limitations right that it is just sort of rolling the dice the mixed bag thing i think that's really important to say because i think what a lot of people would maybe immediately assume or like what even came to my mind was like, Oh man, like uh, how much does it have to do with your mindset? And, and I'm curious, like, do you want to add to that though too? I mean, that probably is a factor or do you think, no, it's really just straight up luck. Um, I mean, I think there is mindset that can influence what you, what you do. I remember that there was somebody in physical therapy when I was, 16, 17 coming out of my cast. And there was an individual who had been in physical therapy for maybe three or four weeks and was not interested in getting themselves moving. And the thing that isn't really talked about a lot is, you know, the mental health issues and the acceptance and the, the, the social acceptance of people with short limbs. It's so confusing, you know, and I think that can have an impact on I think I know it has an impact on everyone in such differing ways it's it it's so personal and it's so specific you know and that can really hinder your motivation it's it on top of feeling pain because of your physical condition or limited because of your physical condition the mental aspect of it you know people don't want to get out of bed when they have a headache. Like imagine if you constantly had chronic back pain because of your scoliosis. Somebody that I interviewed on my show had a curvature of the spine of 88 degrees. Whoa. That's almost a right angle. And he actually saw the same doctor that, that I saw. And you know, there's a point where it just gets exponentially harder to rebound, survive, feel like you want to go on I think at times you know and when complications get so extreme I mean how can you 
not think that it's harder. And, uh, you know, I, I think the, the mental side of it is huge. I always was pushed. I was never told that I couldn't do something because of my size. You know, I was playing baseball and soccer and tennis and all these, I was riding my bike in the mud everywhere as a kid. And I always loved that. And I think that's, that's a really important thing to have those little bits and those little actions that build your confidence and say, okay, cool. I did that. I did that. I did this other thing too. Like I played basketball. I can go and try this other thing. And so it's, it's a balance that I think you need to strike between making sure you don't do something that's going to break you, but also, you know, definitely do the stuff that's going to encourage you and lift you up. Gosh, you know, like you said, the, uh, the mental aspect, I'm, I'm not even thinking that until you said, said it. And of course, you know, we have quite a lot of work to do in the mental health space for everybody, yeah. you know? And so to add that to your life experiences is just, it, it really is hard to, to kind of comprehend all of that. Have you become a source of, hope or like how do you quickly recognize within um the dwarfism community that a need for mental health or how have you become a source of hope for other people just being aware of the additional support that's probably needed yeah absolutely i mean i denied myself and rejected every other little person until i was about 30 um what you were like this is like this is not my club like i don't want to be a part of this absolutely. club sort of thing yeah for sure I, yeah. I mean all the for touring six years on the road i only saw average height folks there were only average height people in my band i think maybe at some point somebody told me about mini kiss but i was i was in an original rock band that was all over the place and everybody was average height and the only time I ever really noticed it is when I would let myself pay attention to somebody staring at me loading in my drums or you know coming up and commenting to me or my bandmates would tell me oh yeah this guy's an asshole and he's been staring at you all night long or we would get press that would say you know this band with the diminutive drummer or the midget drummer or something like that and it's like it's interesting because uh, folks in my band were maybe more sensitive to like reviews on the quality of the music and their output. And I just never cared. And it took me a while to realize that, oh, I've just been dealing with this my entire life. That's why I don't care what anybody says in the press because yeah, it's, it sort of just rolls off your back. It rolls off my back or yeah, in the, in the way that I've created these defense mechanisms to deal with them, you know, and, and that's really what it is. When I, when I think about somebody else seeing me, at least at this point, you know, I'm happy to evolve my thoughts, but at this point I see other people that when they see little people, it's a defense mechanism that spurs their instant reaction, whether it's walking away, making a comment, wanting to take a photo, gasping, you know, telling their friends, uh, avoiding me whatever it is you know it's and it's not just me it's every single person with dwarfism you know <laughs> there's no one that's like i've never had that happen to me ever it's like yeah you have you definitely have and you've created the skin to deal with that and however you have you know some people are like oh i just let it roll off my back and other people will leave the location and cry you know it's a really uh 
tough thing to to deal with. So there's a huge mental health aspect there and you know think about denying your own identity for 30 years and just saying I can do this and I can do that and like I I look just like this drummer when of course I'm like lowering all my stuff so I can sit on it and play the drums and you know there's a lot of creativity in that goes into making stuff around you work we went to Europe and played this was the highlight of my touring career one of them was we went to Europe with Motion City Soundtrack and OK Go and I was playing OK Go's drum set because it was too expensive to travel my drum set and they were the biggest drums that I played regularly on tour it was awesome to like push that much wind that much air in a drum set but I really had to learn to play a 24 inch kick drum and like big toms for the set that my band would play you know I think we did six dates in in like across Europe and that was a thing I had to you know adjust my body so that I could accommodate this drum set it wasn't accommodating the drum set so it would adjust to me it was my body that had to move I hope you've enjoyed the beginning of our conversation with Christoph so far, as he's given us a glimpse into his life's experiences. There were certainly many eye-opening moments for me, especially learning about how physically painful and emotionally painful it can be to grow up as a little person. Check back in next week as we learn about Christoph's experiences as an adult working in TV and film in Hollywood. Be well. third place podcast is produced by podcast publishing house if you like what you're hearing follow us and subscribe at all of your favorite platforms apple spotify also check out the episodes on our website thirdplacepodcast.com for additional resources and transcriptions of our episodes the third place is all about continuing the conversation so make sure you follow us on instagram and facebook at third place podcast There you can check out our weekly co-host Happy Hours on IGTV. And if you like what you're hearing and want to continue to support our work, you can check out our Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash third place podcast.